0: It's so good to see you this morning. If you're coming in, come in and get dry, get warm, get to this uh, good food Miss Kim has made us. And just to echo that announcement, we do invite you to Holy Week here at Second. Uh, you know, if your church doesn't have Holy Week services, we have a uh, mid-afternoon service all throughout the week. And Miss Kim serves lunch before and after the service. 30-minute service is wonderful. Uh, wonderful way to aim your heart towards the Lord. It's good to be with you this morning. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 73, chapter 73, so I invite you to go ahead and turn there. Uh, This is one of those chapters that all the pastors were clamoring for, and I'm so thankful that I'm the one that landed with it. I hope I do justice to it. It's a great one. always love studying God's Word with you, but especially Psalm 73. As you're turning there, uh, just a little bit of context so we can understand uh, what's happening. If you remember... I think George mentioned this at the very start of this series. The Psalter, all 150 chapters are broken up into five different sections or five different books. And each of these books within the Psalter itself have essentially a main theme. Now, really interesting about Psalm 73, what we're studying this morning, it starts that third book, the third collection of chapters, and the main theme is crisis. right? Another really cool thing about Psalm 73 and really the entirety of this third section is that King David is not the primary author, uh, author, his main guy Asaph is. Now if you don't know who Asaph is, here's a couple interesting notes for Asaph. First off, he was a priest. Uh, God chose him to be a priest along with all the other members of the tribe of Levi to be priests over the people of Israel. He's a very important guy. In addition to that, King David chose Asaph among all of the other priests to be the chief worship leader in Israel. We see in First Chronicles that he was commanded, given the order, the job of leading worship services in the tabernacle. He was an extremely gifted man, a faithful man, very talented. He's not all unlike our very own Calvin Ellis who leads our choir and worship here at 2nd. That's the type of guy he was. He was the chief worship leader. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, if King David uh, was the sun in the sky in terms of his importance, the satellite moon to the sun would have been Asaph. That's how faithful he was. That's how important he was to Israel and to the worship of God. Another thing about Asaph is that he was also a very deep, critical, and careful thinker. He didn't mind rolling up his sleeves and getting down in the mud and wrestling with some of those tougher questions of life and the faith. He was a realist. He called things as they were. Uh, He welcomed hard questions. He liked to wrestle with them. And that's what we see in, in Psalm 73. He wrestled with some of the deeper, darker realities of life some of the harder questions of the faith. And as we're going to see, he did that to such an extent in this episode of his life, gazing into the harsher, darker realities of life and the questions of faith, we see that his own faith began to shake a little bit. He started having doubts. Now, we don't really understand from the context of what was happening in Israel at the time. We don't think there was any major calamity or national crisis Uh, We do think, however, just looking in the context, that he was merely observing the way that the world worked. He was noticing the brokenness of the world, the way that the systems were unjust. He noticed acts of injustice. Most notably, wicked people were prospering, and righteous people, God's people, were suffering. And so as he noticed all these observations, he he, he came to the conclusion or started asking uh, the age-old question What's the deal with the problem of evil? He really started pondering that. And as he did, he started doubting the sovereignty and character of God. This is Asaph's testimony, as it were. And that's why so many people love Psalm 73, why I love Psalm 73, because he speaks into the human condition here. And he touches something that all of us struggle with, whether if we admit it or not. Um, the reality of doubt in the life of a Christian. That's what Psalm 73, I know the title, I forget what the title is on your sheet, but really Psalm 73 is about doubt and how we deal with doubt. So with that in mind, I just want to ask you the question, reflective question, do you struggle with doubt? Have you ever struggled with doubt? Have you ever looked at the harsher realities of life, the deeper, darker things that happen to us and those around us, And looking at those, have you ever struggled with your faith? Have you ever called your faith into question, your calling into question, maybe even God's character into question? Have you been ashamed of having those doubts and questions? Do you ever feel like a fraud when those questions go through your mind, that you just hope that no one ever finds out that you just thought that and asked that? If you can answer yes to any of those questions, friends, Psalm 73 is for you. Psalm 73 is a testimony of a season of doubt that Asaph experienced. And in this testimony that we're about to look at, we're going to see two things. Number one, we're going to find the encouragement that God welcomes our questions. Others might turn you away, but God never does. He welcomes our questions and our concerns and even our doubts. And secondly, we're going to see this amazing action plan from the life of Asaph that when we do struggle with those harder questions of life, Those deeper doubts that we sometimes ponder. We're given an action plan of how we can emerge from that and even become stronger than the faith than we once were. So those two things are the main things we're going to see. So let's look at Psalm 73 together, starting with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Verse 1. truly, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. That means they're not experiencing the hardships of life. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not uh, in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind, like God's people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked." Truly, you set them on slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. But nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all of your works. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Uh, We thank you for this morning, for gathering us together, for waking us up, for allowing us to hear our alarms, for giving us the motivation to drive in the rain, to be here as brothers before you, that we might be informed and transformed by your life-giving word. And Father, for the one man, or the four people, or the 60 of us who struggle with doubt, Lord, we do pray that you would... Be kind to us through your word that you would comfort us and encourage us for what you have for us in this story, and this testimony. Uh, Lord, do a mighty work in our hearts. We cannot do that by ourselves, so we need your spirit. Speak to us, O oh Lord, for your servants to listen. This in Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Charles Spurgeon uh, used to tell a story about two bargemen, and they were on their craft, and they were going down a river over rapids, and they came to a place in the rapids where there was a, a cataract where boulders were sticking out of the water. And they were handling the rapids okay, but when they went over those boulders, they couldn't manage it. Their ship broke up, and they went into the water. And the torrents of that rapid began to draw them underneath the water and downriver towards a waterfall. Uh, It just so happens, though, that there was men on the shore who threw out a rope, and one of those men grabbed a hold of that rope. The other, being completely senseless, scared, and out of his wit, uh, saw this giant piece of driftwood also at the same time flowing down the river, and just out of, ha- he just grabbed a-, grabbed a hold of that. He clung to it because that's the only thing that he knew to do to his uh, parish. Uh, Spurgeon says that these two men both were in a serious moment, but one was saved. He was drawn onto shore because he was anchored to shore. The other grabbed a hold of a piece, loose piece of driftwood, and he was never heard of again. His point being that every single person in this world will be molested by doubt and the storms of life. The only difference maker is, is whether if you're anchored to the shore. Uh, friends, there's those uh, in our world, in the church, that would say that if you have doubt, you're faithless. It's something to be ashamed of, it's something that you should hide. And whether if we know better than that or not, I think down deep in our hearts, we think that sometimes. Sometimes. Maybe all the time. I think that's why it's so hard for us, even in our accountability groups with our spouses, to share those seasons where we really struggle with the faith, our doubts. I think that's why it's almost impossible for us to find hymns in Christian music that are anything but happy and uplifting, because we really don't want to deal with the deeper, darker realities of life and those questions of faith. But friends, the truth is, every single person struggles at some point. Some of the most famous Christians of all time struggled with doubt. Jesus' own disciples struggled with doubt. The Reformers, notably John Calvin and Martin Luther, struggled big time with doubt. Some of the greatest theologians of all time, like Blaise Pascal, Martin Lloyd-Jones, struggled with doubt. And the greatest preacher in the world, in my mind, Charles Spurgeon, struggled with doubt. They all struggled with doubt. I mean, how could they not struggle with doubt? Living in the world that we do, seeing the fallen realities about us, experiencing the fallen realities in our own lives. How could we not question? How could we not have doubts? But here's the deal. When you experience those doubts, you do not have to be afraid and you do not have to be ashamed. I love what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller says, faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies. To never ask the hard questions about why you believe what you do is to make you susceptible to the diseases of tragedy and the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Your faith will collapse if you never patiently listen to, deal with, and wrestle with those doubts and questions. To Keller and some of these other men like Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon. They saw their seasons of doubt not as manifestations of their faithlessness, but rather they saw them as opportunities to grow in faith. To wrestle down and to to get answers to their questions because it put arrows in their quiver the next time Satan comes knocking. It was opportunities for them to grow in faith. The key difference, though, between drowning in the torrents of uncertainty and emerging... To a place with stronger faith is that you have the rope of faith tied to what it is that you do know. Namely, that God is good. And that's what Asaph does in this passage. He ties a rope of faith around himself that God is good. And it's only then that he's able to wrestle with these questions. So go ahead and look at this testimony that he gives us, starting with verse 1. This is his testimony. There's a bunch of things that we learn. We learn how to emerge from our seasons of doubt. And uh, the first thing that we see is just right there in verse 1. This is the first step in his testimony. Verse 1 is the key to understanding the entirety of Psalm 73. It's his rope of faith. But Before we look at it, there's a few things about doubt, too, that I want us to understand. Generally speaking, there's three categories for doubt. There's intellectual doubt, for example. And an intellectual doubt would be, uh, you know, is the resurrection real? Did it really happen? Generally speaking, it's those on the outside of the church, non-Christians, that have those type of doubts and questions. Not always, but mostly non-believers, seekers, have those type of questions, intellectual doubts. There's another category. There's spiritual doubts. Those questions, am I really saved? Do I have enough faith? Does God love me? We've all had those before, and the reason is because generally speaking, Christians are the ones that have those type of doubts. Do I have enough faith? But then there's circumstantial doubts. And this is when your biblical faith is an intersection with the pain of this fallen world. You know, why did God allow that to happen to me? Why did that happen to my family? Can I trust God because that happened to me? So it's the crossroads of just living in this fallen world and having a biblical faith. We have sometimes circumstantial doubt, and that seems to be what uh, Asaph is experiencing in this text. So there's three different types. Secondly, there's two different ways, generally speaking, of dealing with our doubt. First off, sometimes we can deal with our doubt dismissively. And this is what I mean by that. There's a way to treat your doubt dismissively by acting as if there's no truth to be found. You know, it's really the difference between... Asking a question and making a prideful assertion. So, for example, a question, a genuine question might be, is God trustworthy? The assertion is, no, God is not trustworthy. I'm just going to go about my day. It's a dishonest way of dealing with your doubt. As a college pastor, I was exposed to that in a lot of different college students that I pastored. And it got to a point where I just quit answering their questions because it turned out they weren't really looking for an answer. They refuse to doubt their own doubt. I know that sounds weird, but think about this. The opposite of faith is unbelief. It's not doubt. Doubt is actually a position of faith. You have a faith position where you're doubting this other claim of faith. But sometimes people refuse to doubt their own doubt, which means they're not dealing with their doubt honestly. That's a very dangerous place to be. The second way of dealing with their doubt is believingly. And this is what I mean by that. We understand that we can be honest with God with all of our doubts, with all of our concerns. But we also have to accept what God tells us. And we're prepared to accept what He tells us. Mainly what He says in Isaiah 55, verse 8, where He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. I think sometimes we really struggle with that one. The way that God governs this world, there's just certain unsolvable mysteries Um, that he he has chosen to simply not unveil all the secret thoughts of his own mind to us. I think I know why. We couldn't possibly comprehend all the things that God thinks and knows. There's just certain things he doesn't tell us, certain things that will be mysteries in this life. However, everything that we need to know for life and faith, he does reveal to us in his word. So generally speaking, this is what Asaph is doing in verse 1. He goes, God, there's things that are happening in my life things that I don't understand, things that don't match up with what I'll know to be true of you. There's an intersection here, and I can't make sense of it. However, you have revealed something to me. Therefore, what you have revealed to me, what I do know to be true about you, I'm going to fasten around my waist. Then I'm going to investigate this doubt that I have. That's what Asaph did. Now, what was his rope of faith? He tells us in verse 1. He says, God is good to the pure in heart. That's what he fastened around his waist. What was his harness as he dove into this cave of deep, dark questions? Now, what does it mean that he, God is good to the pure in heart? Let's just think about God's goodness. First off, goodness is not something that God will uh, become. He doesn't earn goodness. He doesn't just one day become good. Okay, God is good in the absolute sense. He's the source of all goodness. That's who God is. That's who he tells us. That's what he tells us about himself, that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his character, including his goodness. That's just who God is. That's his nature. God is good. He tells us that in his word. However, the most common way that we interact and experience his goodness is through our own redemption. Right? Because we live in this fallen world, we cannot perceive God rightly. We've talked about this before. In Romans 1, Paul says we've exchanged the glory of God for the things of this world. We just don't understand God rightly. We cannot look outside and see how beautifully ordered it is and conclude on our own that God is good. We just can't do that. God has to intervene in our lives so that we might know that He's good. And that's what that phrase, pure in heart, means. Okay, pure in heart. Jesus tells us, uh, that gives us that phrase, pure in heart, in the Sermon on the Mount. What does that mean? It means that you're singularly devoted to God. It means that you're loyal to Him, that you're in love with Him, and that you're not in love with anything else in this world, that He is your primary love, God. That this means to be pure in heart. You do not get to be pure in heart on your own. You don't just wake up one day and you're pure in heart. God has to rescue you to become pure in heart. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. He isn't saying blessed are those who become pure in heart. He said blessed are those who are already pure in heart. The Beatitudes are a description of believers, those whom God has saved. Being pure in heart is something that is done to you by God's goodness. And so this is what Asaph is saying. He's saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't see you. I don't experience tangibly your goodness in my life right now. Things are just not measuring up to what you save yourself. However, I remember your goodness and the fact that you rescued me from myself. You saved me. You delivered me. You brought me into your family. And therefore, even though I don't understand who you are right now or what you're doing right now, I do know that you're good to me then. And if you're good to me then, I can trust you now. In the uncertainty of life. And so it it was that truth that he fastened around his waist that enabled him to look down at this deep, dark question. Had he not had that belt of truth, he would have slipped and he would have fallen into apostasy. That's the danger of not having that belt, of not having that that anchor to cling to. Now, if that's the danger, you might ask yourself, why would you ever deal with your doubt and investigate those questions in the first place? It doesn't seem worth it. Well, in addition to what I said Tim Keller said earlier, I love what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther says, while doubt and despair are certainly the strategies of the devil, God in his grace uses his strategies against him and therefore uses our doubt as a principal way to establish the faith of his people. The doubts that we overcome in this life shape us into Christians who live in the confidence of God's word. And Asaph knew that. And so that's why he fortified himself and the sovereign goodness of God in order to wage war against His doubt. And friends, that's what we must do. We can't let those those doubts and those questions we have permeate or percolate. We must wage war with them. It's for our benefit. We grow in our faith and we're able to be a signpost to other people, which we'll see in a moment. But that that was His rope of faith, that God is good to those whom He has saved. And we know that is true because we've experienced His redemption. Now next... In verses 2, all the way through the end, we basically see the testimony of his doubt. The journey, the road map of where he goes from a place of doubt into a place of stronger faith. Now, it's really amazing. In these first 11 verses, he goes with us, or he tells us really about this storm that's happening in his life and his heart. And in the first section of this storm, he tells us certain things, these grievances that he has. Right? So look at verses uh, 3 through 12. He tells us, First off, that he has a complaint that he gives to God about the wicked. He's complaining to God. He's essentially complaining to God because he's witnessed the iniquity and the actions of these wicked people. And what's really ticking him off is that these people are getting away with their actions. Have you ever experienced that anger before? When you just see wicked people, evil people doing all sorts of nasty things and they're getting away with it scot-free. Have you seen that before? Has that caused you anger before? Of course you have. You live in the world. Asaph had a lot of things to pull from. Here are three examples he gives us. First off, he was angry because these wicked people were not suffering. Now, he's not being mean. He's not saying, I hope these people suffer and get what they deserve. That's not what he is saying. He's just making the observation that they're not suffering at all. They don't have any hardships in their life. They're just getting away with absolutely everything. They're not suffering. I love what he says in verse 4. He gives us that description. They are fat and sleek. What? Admittedly, I had no idea what that meant. Kind of sounded like he was describing the dad body. You know that thing where I have that right now. I have a child. You have no muscle. You're just a slab of flab, essentially. Uh, But that's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about? Being fat and sleek. What does that mean? Essentially means that they have an airbrushed life. They don't have a single care in the world, the cares that you and I experience day in, day out as Christians. They don't have those. It's like a social media thing. Just everything is airbrushed. Essentially what it means is that they look good, they feel good, and they're doing better in life than we are. Imagine this, this is essentially what he's talking about, imagine that you get really sick, you get cancer, and you can't work anymore, and your job, uh, your work is just unjust and they just fire you because you can't work. And you experience that, you experience that, that hardship and that grief, but all the while you're... Your self-serving business partner is healthy as Adonis. And he takes your business from you. He benefits from your demise. Some of you all have experienced that before. That's generally what Asaph was experiencing in his life. These people are, are benefiting off the backs of others, and they're not suffering like we are. And that made him angry. Another thing that he was angry about was there were no consequences for their sin. Nothing made me madder in high school than that. There was one thing that I did that I got in trouble for big time, like big trouble. High school in Germantown, stayed out past curfew. Like the first, That's a big deal in Germantown. They don't play around with curfew. I broke curfew once, found myself in the back of a cop car. All right? I had friends, seriously, that could cook crack on the desk of a policeman and not get in trouble. And I go outside to the park one time. Now, my, I wasn't happy about it. My parents sure weren't happy about it. But we're really... But what really made me angry is, is just I wasn't a bad thing. It was just this one simple thing, and I got in big trouble. And I knew folks who did all sorts of ungodly acts, and they were never held to account. That just makes us angry. What, was really, what really made Asaph angry is that these folks were doing that, but all the while, while they were doing that, they were mocking God. They were saying things and acting as if God was not in a position to judge them or to punish them. It reminds me of, uh, what was this guy's name? Dionysus the Younger. He uh, he was an ancient tyrant in Sicily who plundered the temple of Syracuse, um, stole all the gold, basically had this giant loot, sailed home, and once he got home, he quoted as saying this, uh, do you not see people how the gods favor those who commit sacrilege? How many politicians, people in power, people in our own life have acted in such a way and have said such things? That not only are they getting away with this stuff, but they're mocking our God while they're doing it. That made him angry. What really made him angry was they got all the good stuff too. Verses 9 and 10. <laughs> it even seemed as if they had God's approval in doing these things. Verse 9, written in the NIV, this is what it says. It says, their mouths lay claim to the heavenly inheritance. Not against it. It lays claim to the heavenly inheritance. What that means is that these people that he's observing, they're not little evil Hitlers running around. They're not little evil people from Babylon who enslaved Israel. They're not those people. They're actually people on the inside of the church because they're claiming to be God's people. They're claiming to be the inheritors of God himself. Those folks who are getting fat and rich off the backs of those they're worshiping with. We know folks like that today. I mean, TV evangelists, health and wealth prosperity people, but there's folks in our own churches that are like that. We know them in our own local churches, right? Those who um, just seem to have everybody else snowed. The pastors, the elders, everybody else are just, are just in love with these people, but there's, there's some point in our life where we've seen the real them. They're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, but no one else seems to know or even care. Because he says in verse 10, just everyone seems to gravitate towards them. Because they're rich, because they're wealthy, because they're successful and influential, people just gravitate towards them. And so with all this into consideration, uh, Asaph has this major theological problem. How can God be said to be good to his people if the wicked prosper in this way? That's what he was dealing with in his heart. And from there, it even got worse. From there, he started... Not only doubting the faith, he even made an accusation against God. We see this in verse 13 and 14. In verse 13, he says, well, if these folks are getting away with these things, if they are getting everything they want with no consequences, well, then maybe there's no benefits to godliness. I mean, seriously, if if Christians experience the hardships of just being Christians, if we're chastened to this life, if we have to put to death our sins and beat our bodies into submission and follow God on the narrow path, but these people who do not know God are enjoying the pleasures of life, then what is the point? Why do we go through the things that we do if these other folks are getting away with it and enjoying life now? What's the point of being godly? And from there, he makes an accusation to God. Maybe maybe there is no point in being godly because God simply is not just, is what he says in verse 14. Can you imagine thinking that? Have you ever thought that? That maybe God just isn't just. If the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering, maybe there is no redemptive purpose to my suffering. Maybe there is no point in trusting God in the first place. That was his doubt. That was his struggle. That was the storm of Asaph's life, the worship leader of Israel this important man, this man of faith, that were the questions that he had. It's impossible to look at verses 2 through 13 and not conclude that he was struggling mightily with some of the basic principles of our faith because these nine verses are dripping with bitterness and anger. He had such consternation that in verse 2, that he said, had he not had this rope, remember, this whole thing was written after the fact. He said, had I not had that rope of faith wrapped around me, I certainly would have fallen into apostasy. He said, I almost slipped. My feet almost gave way. But he had that rope of faith. Now, before we get to the next point, the good part, I just want us to take note of something. Notice how God treated him. What well, we learned, this is the takeaway that I want you to understand, God can handle all of your doubts, all of your questions, and all of your accusations. Think about all the things that he just said. If someone came to you with those same doubts and those same accusations, what would you feel? What would be your knee-jerk reaction? Man, this guy is a reprobate. If we went to our mothers and said those things, if I went to my mom when I was a kid and said those things about the Lord, she would have slapped my mouth, knocked me naked, and hid my clothes. I mean, she would have, don't you dare talk about it. Any mother would. That's not how God acts. That's not how God acted. That's not how God received Asaph. He says, come to me. How amazing is this? How tender does God treat Asaph? He is essentially saying, I know that you have questions. I hear your suffering. I see your despair. Come to me, boy. I know that you're crying. I know that you don't understand. I know that you're angry. But come to me. I'll listen to you. Let's talk about it. How amazing is it? How how tender does God treat Asaph? And friends, what is really amazing is that's how tender God will treat you too. Do you realize that the Barnard Group does a whole bunch of statistics? They say that the majority of people that leave church today, just leave the church altogether, is because they don't think their churches are safe places for them to work out their doubts and questions. And I think that's really true. I think that's a real statistic because two weeks ago, not two weeks ago, I met a young man. And we were eating breakfast together, in the middle of the breakfast, he just stopped me cold. Random question, says, hey, I've been coming to second, I just need to ask you something, is second safe for me? I have some very deep questions, can I work those out there, is it a safe place? And it turns out his previous church was not a safe place, and they ostracized him, and he left. I didn't cry in front of him, but I wanted to. I said, yes, second is a very safe place for you to work out your questions. And I hope your church is too, whatever church it is. And I hope it is for two reasons. Number one, listen, Christianity just does not hold water if it cannot stand up to the most probing questions. I believe Christianity is true just as I believe the sun will rise tomorrow. Therefore, it can hold up to the most probing questions. We have to be safe places for people. But secondly, we show mercy to the doubter because God commands us to in Jude 22. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Why? Why? Because, friends, God had mercy on us too, didn't he? Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16. Jesus is our great high priest who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses because he was tempted in every respect as we are yet remain without sin. What that means is, is that Jesus experienced the full blow of every single temptation because he did not sin. You and I do not experience the full blow of every temptation because we are weak, we're sinful, and we fall. Jesus experienced the full blow of every single temptation because He did not sin, which means then that He can sympathize with every single one of our weaknesses, including our doubt. He knows us, and He loves us. And what we understand from Scripture is that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, this great high priest that God was preparing in His forbearance and mercy and sovereignty, while Asaph was falling down into an oblivion, God was already preparing the plan for our great high priest to come. And if you have faith in Him, you can have assurance that He will never let you go, even in the darkest seasons of your life. Because Paul says there's not one dadgum thing in this world that could ever separate you from His love. And with that rope of faith wrapped around your chest, holding you tightly, you can take Him all of your sufferings, all of your doubts, and all of your questions, and trust that He will deal with you kindly. That's what we learn from the story of Asaph. So he had this giant problem in his life, this theological problem, but now we see something amazing happen in the last half of this chapter. The last how many of verses, starting at verse 15 all the way to 28, something amazing happens. Here he is, and it's just this turmoil. But all of a sudden, he has this amazing reorientation. He starts to see things differently, and not only that, he emerges to a place of defiant faith. I also ask the question, how in the world does that happen? How do you go from almost slipping into unbelief and not only stopping, right? Not only stopping, but growing in faith. If our answer is, well, verse 1, the rope of faith, well, that would be half right. Because that only keeps people from falling when you hold on to what you know to be true. Does it account for what grows you in faith? What grew him in faith? He tells us in verse 17. Just when Asaph was about to be swept away by that torrent storm, this honest doubter, verse 17, he entered the sanctuary of God. He entered God's sanctuary. That which calmed his heart and his mind more than anything else, that which opened his eyes, that which caused the fog of uncertainty to dissipate was worship how amazing is that? It's when when you worship the Lord that you begin to grow in faith. Now, how does that work? Well, what happens in worship? This is what happens in worship. You and I meet God. In worship, you and I draw near to God and when that happens, your perspective changes. What was Asaph's problem? What was his perspective? We said that his theological problem was that he couldn't line up how God could be good if wicked people prospered. But when he came into the presence of God and started seeing things as God sees them, he realized that his problem was much deeper than that. It was a spiritual one. He was self-focused as a human being. He was judging how good God was based off his circumstances. So his question really isn't, why isn't God good? His question was, why isn't God good to me? He was self-focused. He was going about life viewing all of his problems, um, uh, or essentially viewing God in light of his problems, not his problems in light of who God is. He had this self-focus, but then he enters into God's throne room, and his orientation changes. What happens? He receives this eschatological viewpoint of how God sees the world, of how God sees others, of how God sees you, and certainly of how God sees blessings. Church works that way, I mean, just generally speaking. Never in my career as a young pastor have I ever met a young couple that wants to get married in one of those new age churches that meet like in a movie theater. They love going to them because they're hip, but they don't like to get married there. Why? Why? Because they're about to make the biggest decision of their life. They want to be reminded about how big and powerful and majestic God is. They want the steeple. They want the stained glass windows, the high ceilings, the cross right before them. Because they want to be reminded about how amazing and powerful and good God is. That's just what worship does. It reorients you. It brings you into the throne room so you might have a perspective, the perspective of God. That's what Revelation is about, really. I know we don't like to study Revelation because it's weird and it's scary and it's hard to understand, but essentially what the book of Revelation is 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 it's showing us uh, with the veil peeled back of how God views reality. And that's what worship does. Worship is essentially LASIK surgery for the cataracts on the eyes of our heart. Enables us to see things rightly. Enables us to see how God sees things our perspectives are changed. Now, what changes precisely with Asaph? Three things. One, uh, first off, he started viewing other people differently. Uh, not just uh, wicked people. He started viewing believers differently. We'll kind of run through this. But verse 15, he saw believers differently. I think it's interesting that he had no problem of unloading his doubts with God, but notice that he was a little sheepish with unloading his doubts to those that he was leading in his congregation. Why do you think that is? Well, the reason is, as leaders... There's just certain things you don't share with the people that you're leading. As parents, we don't tell our kids absolutely everything that goes on. We're not dishonest with them, but we don't tell them everything because we don't want to scare the mess out of them. And as leaders too, spiritual leaders, we don't share everything that goes on in our lives with those that we're leading. I mean, can you imagine if whoever your head pastor is in the middle of preaching, if he just stops in his tracks and says, guys, I don't know if God's good. An unmanaged and unmastered doubt just shares that with the people that he's leading. Can you imagine what that would do to the hearts and souls of those in his congregation? Asaph knew that. In the sanctuary, he knew that would, that would happen, that he would cause people to... That doesn't mean that we can't share our doubts with other folks. Of course we need accountability partners, but he's just simply making the point that when he went into the sanctuary, he took his eyes off himself and he started caring about the spiritual well-being of other believers. His focus changed in the sanctuary. It also changed with the wicked. He was way too caught up with the here and now, with the monetary blessings of people. He needed to have the curtains peeled back and see folks as God sees them. He needs to see the eschatological end of uh, this earth. He needs to understand what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, what God sees, because when those, when those uh, curtains get peeled back, you see that justice is always trending upward. And one day justice will be here and reign in full, and he needed to be reminded of that And he's reminded of that in the sanctuary. Not only does he say that God puts these wicked men on slippery slopes, which means that one day they will experience fall in this life, but the reality is they don't always experience fall in this life, but still they will one day. And therefore the reason he was not envious any longer of these men was because he knows what awaits them. They might have all the things of this life, but they do not have God. He wasn't being nasty. He wasn't being mean. He was just being factual. If you do not know God, you might be wealthy and you might have all the trinkets of this world. But you will experience eternal suffering. If you do know God, you might suffer. You will suffer in this life, but you will experience eternal joy. And he was reminded of that. He wasn't glad about that. He wept over that. He just no longer envied them. So his perspective changed on how he viewed other people. His perspective changed on how he viewed himself. We see that next. Now, I said earlier that it's not always sinful to doubt, and that is absolutely true. But the truth is also that oftentimes when we do doubts, because at the very beginning we had some sinful way of understanding God. Uh, Asaph, he he knew very well that God would be gracious and welcoming to him to share his doubts. But he also knew that if he went into God's throne room, God was liable to correct his way of thinking. And he accepted that. And so he went into worship and he realized, yeah, there's things I need to confess. Ultimately, the way I've been thinking and the way that I've been acting. And we got to understand that, too. Not only do we have to understand that God doesn't tell us everything, when we investigate our doubts, we have to be prepared to confess sin. And this is what Asaph does. First off, he confesses his way of thinking. In verse 2, he said, I was envious. That was the genesis of my doubt in the first place, he says. I was envious of all these people. I was, from, I, I, I was looking at my problem as God, and I was looking at God as the problem because I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker, the illusion of this world, that satisfaction comes from treasures. And God is good based off how many treasures he gives me. I sinned against you, God. Forgive me. Then he also confessed the way that he was acting. He said, I was like a wild beast towards God. What does that mean? It means that he was acting like a a creature in this world that does not know God, that is soulless, that does not have the ability to to reason or to know the Lord. I was acting like that. I was like a bull in the china shop. I was like some dog that was distracted by squirrels. I was looking at all these different blessings in this world and saying, "Oh, that's going to satisfy. That's what life is about. That's my God." And it was just crazy. I was acting like a beast towards you, O Lord. he was looking at his problems as his own God, and he was looking at God as the problem. And so he goes into his throne room and says, Father, thank you for receiving me, but I know that I've sinned against you. Now, this is what's really cool. Tim Keller says, it's only when we do that, confess our sins, that we experience that amazing, gracious word in verse 23, nevertheless. Nevertheless, he says where doubt once reigned. Look at this amazing, defiant faith that Asaph now has in verse 23. The treason that he just confessed, he says, never was it less true and certain that I'm still loved and saved. Never is it less certain, even though I was experiencing these things, even though I committed high treason, I know that you love me, and there's not one thing I could ever do to change that. He says, nevertheless, You still love me in spite of my sin against you. And Christian, that nevertheless is true for us too. In the valley of our doubt, in the valley of our confession, in the valley of our sin, God still loves you. He is yours and you are His, and nothing will ever change that. And therefore then, that leads to our next change of perspective. If God is that good in the gospel, then maybe I need to rethink what blessing means. And that's what happens next. He reminds us of what true and everlasting and real blessing is. It's not the things of this world, but the blessings that last, the blessings that matter, the blessings that are only enjoyed by the people of God. Number one, we enjoy the presence of God. He says, you and I, just Christians, remember, you have the presence of God. What can be greater than that? He says, the world has its trinkets, but I have you. They don't have you. I have you now, and I will always have you. And what's better than that, I can never lose you. But in this sanctuary, he was reminded that the people of this world, wicked men, they don't have that. They might have the good things of this world, as the world calls them, but he has the ultimate good. He has the presence of God. He has fellowship with God. He has communion with God. He has intimacy with God, and so do you too. First off, we have the presence of God. Second, we have the protection of God. He's talking about God's Word, God's Word, which shows us how to live faithfully and righteously. Lastly, we have the person of God. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 25, Who do I have in heaven but you? Verse 26, Nothing on earth do I desire but you. What he's is saying is, I have surveyed absolutely everything in heaven. I've surveyed absolutely everything in this world. And I've concluded that none of it is worth it. I desire you and you alone. You are my chief desire, God. If you want to know what true faith looks like, just ask yourself the question, Is God your ultimate desire? Even more desirable than all the blessings that we've been given, the promises that we've been given about what heaven will be like. No more tears, no more suffering, no more death. We'll be reunited with our loved ones, so on and so forth. Great blessings. But what if God isn't there? What Asaph is saying, God, if you're not there, I don't want it. It's just a cleaner hell without you. I desire you above all things, and if that's true of heaven, I certainly desire you above all things of this world. Ask yourself, do you have a faith that says, God, if I don't have you, I have nothing. C.S. Lewis says, our problem is not that we desire pleasure, but we desire lesser pleasures. We're just like stupid school kids who like to make mud pies in the street corner because we don't understand what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We don't understand that there's greater pleasures, greater blessings that God reserves for his people, namely that we know them that we're in his presence, that we have his words so that we can speak to him and learn from him and ultimately that we have him. Friends, there was a time that Asaph enjoyed making mud pies until he started worshiping the Lord, until he drew near to God and his eyes were lifted heavenward and once again he saw all the glories of God and the incalculable worth of his person and presence. How much so for us as Christians, friends, who have Christ The treasure in the field. That when you set your eyes on the treasure of the field, remember what you have. One, you have his presence. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Who took on our suffering, took on our death and our pain so that we might be with him. He gives us his spirit so that he's with us now. He's promised an eternal presence with us in eternity forever. That we might be before him in glory. We have Christ. What else is there? We have his protection. He guides us. He's promised us that he'll be with us to the end of the age. And friends, we have his person. He is, Paul says, our inheritance, Christ himself. And it's when we set our eyes on Jesus, right, that we become less entertained with the false promises of this world and that we're able to find strength because we know it's true, that we're hidden in Christ, our great high priest, And therefore we can entrust in him all the things that we don't know because what we do know for certain is is that Christ is on the throne and he loves us. Blaise Pascal, I know that we have to go. Blaise Pascal, unbelievable theologian. He was a genius mathematician in the Enlightenment era. He wasn't always a Christian. Uh, In fact, he was raised in the faith. He was taught the gospel by his mother, but he had lots of, of suffering in his life. First off, his skull was never fully formed. He suffered from severe migraines his entire life. His beloved mother died at an early age. Um, and so he simply just walked away from the faith. He got swept up, just like that man in Spurgeon's story. He, he grabbed a hold of a log that was just going down river, and his log were the philosophies of his day, people like Descartes and so on and so forth. And so he abandoned God. He rejected God. even tried to convince other people that God didn't exist. But that gospel that his mom taught him always remained in his mind. And one day, I wrote down the date, November twenty third, 1654, the year, He began asking, could the gospel really be real? And then he walked out his front door, and he didn't explain what he saw. All he did was to describe it as fire. He saw a fire in the sky. And as he saw that fire in the sky, he opened up the scriptures and came to Psalm 119. I'll read that in a second. But after he saw that and had this really amazing experience, this is what he wrote down. He said, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Not of the philosophers, not of this world, but joy. Jesus, my God, forgetfulness of this world and everything in it except God. He is found in the gospel alone. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have departed from you, the fountain of living water, but let me not be separated from you for forever. I fled from Jesus. I renounced Jesus. I crucified Jesus, but he kept me in the warm embrace of the gospel. And then, at the very end of it, he wrote down Psalm 119, verse 16, I love your statutes, O God, may I never forget your word. He always struggled with doubt till the day that he died, but from that moment on, he rolled that parchment up and pinned it to the inside of his blazer so that whenever the torrents of doubt came upon him, he might read that, the gospel, as his rope of faith. And when he did that, this is what happened he became a fixed point for other doubters. He struggled with doubt, but he, he, but, he, but he fortified himself in the love and the gospel of God, and then he became a fixed point for other men like us. This is what he wrote. He says, when everyone is moving towards the slippery slopes of depravity, which is all of us, all the people in this world, the Christian stops and shows up for others who are rushing on by acting as a fixed point that they too might know that God is good like my mother told me. Friends, we all have doubts. We all have struggles. But hang on to what you do know. The gospel. And if the gospel is true, that means God is good. Fortify yourself in it. Fortify yourself in the gospel. And when those torrents of doubt come, they're just going to break over you. And I guarantee you'll emerge an even stronger believer. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you give us your words that we might know who you are that we might know that you are true that you might know that we might know that you love us in the gospel of Jesus Christ there are so many times in this world where our faith is shaken uh, we are con- we confess that we are very weak in faith every single one of us even the best of us in faith are still weaklings in faith but that doesn't matter. What matters is the strength of the object of our faith. And Jesus tells us he will never, ever let us go. So, Lord God, let us rest comfortably and peaceably in the warm embrace of Jesus. Lead us as we live this life that we might bring you glory and be a fixed point for our brothers. And this in Christ we pray. Amen.